Last year, my girlfriend was planting a tree in our backyard, and she unearthed a piece of pottery. It's small, an inch and a half at its longest, and the old red stripes have the romantic color of dried blood on dirt. It's not large enough to be beautiful, but it's obviously human and obviously old, and both of those things, together, give it a magnetism. If you live in southern or central Arizona, you're living on top of the Hohokam. Our houses have succeeded theirs on the landscape, our freeways and suburban strip malls cover their fields and sports arenas, and yet, for most of us, they're relegated to a back corner of consciousness, hanging out with dinosaur skeletons, bad animations of plate tectonics, and a few space telescope pictures of the Crab Nebula. Things that seem like they must be important, somehow, that we remember just enough to feel guilty about forgetting. But all those things do matter. Plate tectonics matters when your city gets torn in half. Dinosaurs matter when you want to understand your place in the long arc of evolution, which some folks might conceivably want to do. The Crab Nebula matters because it reminds you that you're just a transient bubble of ego. Not information to make you rich, and maybe not even make you wise, but perhaps to make you a little more humble? And I think history and anthropology and archaeology fall into this category too. The scales are different, but it's all context. So, today, let's try to meet the Hohokam. Howdy. Hi. Hi. Uh, Hi. This is Susie Fish. Susie Angus Anderson. Nice, nice to meet you. You're listening to Tuxonense, a podcast of place. For those of you who found this through Neto Portillo's article in The Star, welcome. And a lot of thanks to Neto for writing that and helping get the word out. I hope you like what you hear, and of course, subscribe via iTunes or whatever you listen to podcasts with. Back in January, I found myself waiting for a train in the back seat of Paul and Susie Fish's small crossover SUV. They're archaeologists, and we were in Marana, just off Interstate 10, where a sharp line divides a suburban development from state trust land. The development, a recent creation of LGI Homes, is a collection of stucco snout houses that hunker around cul-de-sacs and along deliberately maze-like streets. There are five available models of house, four named after a seemingly random collection of Arizona towns, Bisbee, Ajo, Prescott, Snowflake, and one called Cimarron, presumably because that sounds western. North of the LGI Homes wall, state and federal lands are wedged between the freeway and the low Tortoleta Mountains. This is where a Hohokam community, referred to as the Marana community, appeared and disappeared. This is a place Paul and Susie excavated, explored, and meticulously reburied over the course of three decades.
Susie and Paul have agreed to show me around the dig site and help me try to visualize the Hohokam as real people. Not the cartoon Indians you see on trite southwestern heritage murals, not the quaintly regional enigma whose name is emblazoned on a dog-walking park in a community for retirees, not the claim by real estate pimps that you should move to Tucson because we've already been here 4,000 years. Those hohokam are creations and tools of the present, little more than attempts to manufacture economic activity or cheap cultural identity. And while we can never truly know who the hohokam were, we can do a hell of a lot better than the few places where the hohokam appear in popular culture. Before we get to walking around the Marana community, we need an accelerated version of Hohokam 101. First, though corn arrived in the Tucson Basin almost 4,000 years ago, and irrigation became normal 3,200 years ago, it would be a stretch to lump those people in with the cultural group we think of as the Hohokam. The Hohokam, as we define them, emerge or solidify, verbs are tricky here, with the increasing use of pottery between 200 and 450 CE, and they stick around on the archaeological record until the 15th century. That's a thousand years, ten times longer than Arizona has been a state. Archaeologists parse that millennium by community size, pottery style, and architecture, among other things. They know Hohokam communities got steadily more concentrated, that ball courts became fashionable around the 8th century and unfashionable by the 12th, at which point the Hohokam were building communities around enormous platform mounds topped with walled structures, which is what we'll be walking around today. At their peak, the Hohokam lived in a swath of land from Phoenix to Tucson, around Lake Roosevelt, in the San Pedro River Valley east of Tucson, and southwest of Tucson, in today's Tahana Autumn Reservation. Often, they stuck to riverine areas where they could irrigate, which they did astonishingly well, better than anyone else in North America. Some Hohokam canals stretched over 20 miles, and if we humor current speculation, helped sustainably support a population of 60,000 people in the Phoenix area. Phoenix wouldn't hit that population again until almost 1940, at which point it wasn't remotely sustainable. Tucson was a backwater in comparison, but some individual communities were larger and denser than those in Phoenix, so at least we've got that. Oh, and one more thing you should know about the Hohokam. The word comes from the A'atam, Huhugam, which I am doubtlessly mispronouncing, but means something that is all gone. And if you were standing where I am right now, you'd almost be inclined to believe that. Paul and Susie can read a landscape. They've spent virtually all of their long careers studying the Hohokam, working on digs, teaching, publishing. Retirement doesn't seem to have made their interest flag at all. 
Throughout the 1980s, they helped oversee the Northern Tucson Basin Archaeological Survey, which explored all the way from Tucson up to Picacho Peak. We start by walking the edges of the Marana community, which became a booming place in the mid-12th century. There would have been several clusters of multi-room buildings facing courtyards. All of the clusters would, in turn, have been arranged around a large platform of earth, topped with a walled compound. But before we get there, Paul spots something that only an archaeologist would be excited about. And I want to pause for half a second here, so the size of the jump Susie and Paul just made isn't lost on us. We're in the constant process of reevaluating the Hohokam. Unlike the ancestral Puebloan, formerly the Anasazi, in the Four Corners region, who left monumental stone architecture like Chaco Canyon and Mesa Verde, things you'd buy postcards of, Hohokam buildings had largely eroded by the time the first archaeologists started sinking their picks into things. As a result, the Hohokam were initially underappreciated, but what Paul and Susie and a lot of other archaeologists have been saying is very different. These are people who could afford to build a huge community in the middle of a mediocre stretch of desert 
because their civilization was big enough and connected enough to need a midpoint between the mountains and the river. More impressive, that midway settlement, which we're currently walking around, was probably making products in exchange for food, which is an interesting division of labor. bit of ambience here. As the sun climbs overhead, I look to the west, past the rumbling gray streak of Interstate 10, and try to make out where the Santa Cruz River would be. Five miles? Six? The Tortolitas and the Gulf extravaganza known as Dove Mountain are off to the east, but they'd be a slightly longer hike. Though Hohokam density was low, there's something familiar in how they filled the Santa Cruz Basin from one mountain range to the next. There's also something familiar about their houses. 
regional trade for basic materials, houses that look like the houses you might find in the barrio today, plastered walls not unlike the stucco burbs on the horizon, lumber from the Catalinas, privacy fences, apartment living. It's tempting to stretch the analogies, but at the same time, there are some similarities between the Hohokam world and ours, and certainly between the Hohokam world and the Tucson of a century ago. It's hard for me to imagine getting together with a couple of friends and carrying a tree 30 miles on our shoulders, and yet, walking around the Marana community, the Hohokam start to feel more real. But architecture is only one way to meet the Hohokam. Food is another.
Mexican Mesoamerican practice of using alcoholic beverages and ritual and reciprocity. When you move further north in the southwest, you find Pico. The absence of domesticated chili is a puzzle. Currently, their northernmost prehistoric appearance is in Chihuahua, Mexico, but that was only discovered five years ago. Did the Hohokam have an aversion to spicy food, or do we simply need to do more digging? What evidence would we need to obliquely infer the presence of chilies? And speaking of oblique inferences, Hohokam dress is also a bit of a puzzle. University of New Mexico anthropologist Patricia Crown suggests that it was minimal. Naked most of the year, the occasional loincloth, blankets and fur robes in winter, sandals on the hottest days. She infers this from clay figurines and early historic records of the autumn. The figurines also suggest men with dreadlocks, women with bangs, ear and septum piercings, and some kind of body paint or maybe even tattooing. If we can trust the figurines to be representative, the guys seem to have hogged the jewelry. But maybe they're no more representative than if someone 700 years from now dug up a Spider-Man action figure and assumed that Americans wore audaciously colored body stockings and lacked mouths.
This is one of the things I love the most about archaeology, anthropology, and history. The reminder that the social forms we think of as natural are constructed, that there are infinite ways of organizing people and their values. I especially enjoy the suggestion that the Hohokam could have developed a state bureaucracy, but chose not to, perhaps because it looked unfair, or cumbersome, or barbaric. Around 1300, after a century of habitation, the Morana settlement emptied out. It didn't slowly depopulate, and it wasn't attacked either. Instead, they ritually destroyed their buildings, packed up their matates, those are the stones for grinding corn, and moved away en masse, the population merging with larger settlements around Tucson and Picacho. Changes in climate and weather don't seem to explain the move. Was it an ancient version of the draw of the big city? Paul and Susie do know that people occasionally returned to the Morana site and cooked food there in years long after the houses melted back to earth. Were they picnicking at the ruin? Visiting their grandparents' abandoned town? On the rare occasions when you run into a story about Hohokam civilization, the narrative is presented as a thousand-year preamble to their exciting and mysterious collapse. Which I get. It's an event. It provokes the imagination. Most of what we know about the Hohokam is like what you've heard from Susie and Paul here. Architecture, diet, social structure, not narrative. There are autumn oral traditions, but even there, it's hard to get a sweeping narrative of politics, intrigue, and drama, the stuff we like to build narratives from. So it's natural to fixate on Hohokam civilization's collapse in the 15th century, because it's the most story-like thing we've got. 
And something massive did happen. Between 1400 and 1500, Hohokam populations declined and became less concentrated. Canals fell into disrepair, massive architecture vanished. Was this a collapse or an adaptation to new conditions? And did the Hohokam themselves vanish? Some Aatam, Maricopa, and Yavapai would maintain that Hohokam is a meaningless term because they are the Hohokam and they are still right here. I want to save that story for another episode for two reasons. First, transition or collapse shouldn't define the Hohokam and overshadow our efforts to meet them on their own terms. Second, the Hohokam legacy and even the use of the word Hohokam remain contentious political questions, ones that will demand new interviews and more research. I don't know if I'll produce that story next or if I'll head off in another direction for a while, but what are podcasts for, if not the unexpected? Thanks for listening. This is Tuxonense, a podcast of place.